Welcome. I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. And once again, we have another astounding guest. Uh, Chris Krupar, I'd like to say I've known him for a long time. I've known him for about four days. <laughs> um, I met Chris on, like we all do today, on social media. I was actually a guest on a podcast, and he was a guest as well. And the host, uh, Marie Alessi, introduced us, and I reached out to Chris, and the rest is history. His story is very compelling, very similar. Unfortunately, him and I have a lot of similarities, uh, both unfortunate and fortunately. Um, the way we've both kind of taken adversity kind of head on, uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure he'll talk about setbacks. I've had my plenty of setbacks. It isn't all living undeterred every day. As I like to say, Chris, living undeterred isn't living untested, you know. Well, Chris, welcome to the show and uh, appreciate your time uh, logging in all the way from, uh, I assume, beautiful New Mexico. Yes, sunshiny New Mexico, three, 300 sunshiny days a year. <laughs> We're it's, having a good one today for Iowa. It's not too bad. Um, it's been w really windy this spring. We've been averaging 25 mile an hour winds almost every day, um, yeah. which is not abnormal for here, but it's, you know, been seven, 10 days in a row. So. Yeah. Yeah. We, this is our windy season as well, but we're a little drier. So we have a little more dust blowing around, but that's really our only bad weather. Uh, we don't have blizzards or hurricanes or tornadoes or earthquakes. Uh, so our, our bad weather is a couple of months of, of dust and uh, it's, it's a fair trade-off for the rest of the year. So <laughs> well, we're going to find out how beautiful I've been in New Mexico before, but not in this context when our tour gets there. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, but but first, you know, I guess I can start off by saying you and I are, you know, members of a club, unfortunately, that nobody asked to join. And that's uh, a club where we have a deceased child. And unfortunately, not just a deceased child, but the same manner. Um, yes. uh, our son, Seth, died in 2016, and, and your son was I think four and a half, four years ago. Is that right? Six, six and a half. Okay. Oh yeah. You were actually six and a half then. Um, yeah, six tell us a little about your son. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and then we can go from there. So yeah, my, my son, Ryan, um, he was, uh, from the moment that he was born, he was a bundle of energy and, um, I, I would imagine, uh, so his, his mother and I, we separated, when he was uh, about two years old. And so um, as often as it is with, with fathers who don't end up with primary custody of their children, I, I often wasn't able to get all the information as far as you know medical care for him and, and situations. But um, just on my own, I, I believe he you know, most, most likely suffered from at least some level of attention deficit. Um, mm. I, I know I have a bit of it myself, right? I mean, yeah. I, 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 yeah. <laughs> at my age, I'm, I'm 55. I, I don't know if you want me to say your age out loud. But I'm 56. We're... <laughs> <laughs> so we're one year apart. I have apart. a sense of deficit as, as do you, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, when we came up at school, uh, there was no such term. And in fact, this was even before people were being uh, termed as hyperactive. I mean, right. basically, there were just kids who listened and kids who didn't Chris, <laughs> so, go, out, go out and play go outside yes. and play. <laughs> go go expend your energy right before yeah. you drive us crazy so yeah um but yeah i, I kind of noticed that early on with ryan and so 
I, I would assume that he eventually self-medicated to slow things down, right? Mm -hmm. that, that life was sort of whizzing by him quickly. And um, he, I definitely noticed that he had some anxiety problems. Mm -hmm. And so I think we all know that, you know, there aren't too many people who choose to get high just simply for the high. I mean, there mm -hmm. certainly are recreational users, but a lot of folks self-medicate because they're trying to take care of something that's not being addressed otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, you and I, when we talked, I mentioned that, you know, according to my son, he uh, started using opioids as a result of somebody in his neighborhood passing away uh, from cancer and another neighborhood teen realized that maybe they should go look in a trash can. And unfortunately, mm. back then, people weren't very careful disposing of medications. And so right. uh, there was a, quite the variety of what they found. And obviously, you know, upon trying that, he found something that, that made him feel mm. better. And it kind of all went from there. So and he struggled on and off. Um, we had I worked with his mother and we got him in a faith based program mm -hmm. and uh he actually managed to buy and use while he was in the program, which was, Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so then eventually his mother would put him in a different program, a little more higher end, a little more expensive. And then ultimately down the road, I would get him in a program in North Carolina that he managed to get through. And mm -hmm. so he, you know, he battled this on and off. Um, uh, one of the things that I try to emulate from him is that in between the difficult times of his life, when he was awake, you know, um, he lived life fearless. I mean, he was amazing mm -hmm. at everything that he did, whether it was skateboarding or, you know, snowboarding. Uh, so that's something that I've tried to, you know, work into my life. You, you mentioned that living a life undeterred doesn't mean that you live a life untested. And right. for me, I'm, I'm, you know, definitely I'm tested every day isn't rainbows and butterflies, right. but I think about my son, I mean, his struggles were really difficult, but, but in those good times, in those up times, I mean, he just lived completely fearless. And so, you know, that's, mm. that's a pattern that I've tried to apply to my own life is in between the testing times <laughs> when, when we're living undeterred, um, I'm doing it all out. But, but anyways, so um, my son had gone through those various programs. Um, his battle was an on and off situation. He had actually stopped using for a while. And from, from what I can surmise, I, I don't know all the details, but it would seem like that, that day that he decided to um, fall off the wagon per se, mm -hmm. it ended up being fentanyl. And I don't know if he knowingly purchased you know, pure fentanyl. I just know that, that that's what's listed on the death certificate was an accidental overdose of fentanyl. And you couldn't have ever heard of fentanyl back then because I had never heard of fentanyl when Seth died. Yeah, it was much later that I really started to, to hear more information to understand how much more lethal it was, the variety right. of synthetics that are out there. Um, my, my wife has a brother who is 50-ish uh, and he's sadly been battling this, uh, has been battling addiction for, for decades. Mm -hmm. And um, in a conversation we had with him several months ago, he mentioned that he's pretty much getting by on his methadone treatment. And unfortunately, he chooses to, when he uses, he uses crack cocaine. He no longer mm -hmm. looks for heroin because he said there just simply isn't any heroin out there anymore. That he knows that whatever mm -hmm. he's getting is something synthetic. It's either fentanyl laced or pure fentanyl. And he's been, you know, Narcan back himself. And he's had too wow. many friends that 
that have gone through that, you know, uh, often unexpectedly, uh, unknowingly ingesting or taking fentanyl, thinking that it's that it's heroin. So, well, our, our stories are more similar than just our, our Seth and, and Ryan. Um, how old was Ryan? Ryan was 24. So yeah, was 24. 23. I mean, you and I could probably sit down. There's probably, you know, 80% of the stories we could just flip flop the names and be yeah. the same story. Um, yeah. But something that really grabbed me when you and I talked on the phone, that probably is different than anybody I've talked with yet on this journey. And I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people. It's a couple of comments you made. Um, the illusion of permanence, which I love because I talk about the word impermanence and you just kind of flipped it from a different perspective. And I, I love that illusion of permanence. I want to have you talk about what you mean by that. And then this, um, we talk about changing the narrative and everyone's out there, you know, chasing big pharma and chasing drug cartels and, um, you know, just spending a lot of time kind of on the supply side, you know, changing the laws and all that. And you just said, I want to focus on how we process grief. I want to show people that we need to, and I, I just thought, and you use an example, like at a funeral where it's all, everyone's in black and crying and you got the sad music and it's like, you are so correct. Um, and I even like recently, not recently, but the last couple of decades that we've had celebration of lives that we've had for deceased. Like our son, Seth was in a garage celebration of life. You know, we had, it, it was, it was a celebration we didn't really have a funeral. Um, and then my wife's the same way. We had a celebration here at my house, uh, opened up the house to friends. And, but I just think you're onto something there, Chris. And I want you to expand a little bit on the, um, illusion of, of permanence and then how do you think people need to be looking at grief differently? Uh, I'm in agreement with you, but I want to know how you think we can, we can move this needle. Yeah. And, and thank you for bringing the, the focus, uh, to, to hear, um, I, I see you and others a little more out there on the forefront, you know, bringing up the issues of awareness and prevention and, and things of that nature. But, but the simple truth is, is that, for years to come, there are going to be people who lose their life to this situation. Mm -hmm. Right. And so my focus is on helping those people, you know, pick up the pieces more or less, or help try to help them uh, see life and death uh, from a different perspective. Uh, you know, dying from fentanyl poisoning is one of many, many, many ways that people, you know, can leave the planet. And mm -hmm. I, I don't really know who gets the credit for the quote, but somebody was quoted as saying, none of us are getting out of here alive. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think they try to give it to, to some actor or somebody. I don't Mark know, Twain you know. or somebody probably said it, you know. <laughs> yeah, who knows? But that's an excellent quote, right? I mean, and that's, that's yeah. the reality. You know, we, we often in, in our lives, um, at least superficially, we'll, we'll make comments about that the youth, that the young have that... Um, false sense of immortality. Right. Yeah. So they'll try things that we won't. So, right. you know, I, I mountain bike, I ski, but my, I evaluate the risk before I hit a jump or, you know, yeah. drop off of some rocks. I, I evaluate that differently than my 18 year old self would have, because yeah. I know my recovery time is, is double now, right. Or triple. Yeah. Um, and so we, we know that, I mean, we know that when we're younger, we, we think we're immortal, but really, even though we may think about our, our mortality and address it a little more as we move through life, when the rubber meets the road, when an unexpected death occurs, 
then we realize that though we've thought about it, you know, we really haven't understood or embraced the fact that dying is absolutely part of our existence here, right? Mm-hmm. It's and and I it was one of the quotes in the movie The Shawshank Redemption was to either get busy living or get busy dying. And so when I talk mm-hmm. like this and I talk about embracing the fact that death is part of life, I certainly am not emphasizing the, you know, let's get busy dying aspect, right? It's Absolutely. more or less understanding that this is not permanent. None of us are immortal in this physical realm. And so therefore, whether we have another day or another, you know, 5,000 days, we ought to be living each and every one of those days, you know, as, as it is the blessing that it is every morning that we wake up and take a breath is amazing, right? It's another opportunity. It's another chance, but we do tend to fall into that illusion of permanence, you know, that when somebody does die unexpectedly, the amount of grief, the amount of despair and the things that we feel are related to the fact that, you know, we're in, we're in denial. We just can't believe that this could happen. Why do you um, and, think that is? Well, it's, it's a, you know, a lot of it has to do with the social constructs that, mm-hmm. that we've all bought into. I mean, we are a societal people, right? And we share beliefs and we, we learn and we observe, you know, from the time that we were young, we would hear about somebody dying in the family and we would attend a funeral service. And as you said, folks who were, you know, in black and it was sad and people were crying. And I mean, I've been to funerals where, you know, the, the loved ones left behind were, were just screaming. I mean, just absolutely yeah. screaming and, and, yeah. and coming completely undone. Right. Or people couldn't even go to a funeral because it was so traumatic just to go and honor somebody's life. Yes. Yes. That's sad. Yeah. And then we tend to, you know, we, I understand that there are typical, not guaranteed, but typical chronological orders to Mm -hmm. when we expect people to die. Grandparents go first and then parents and then children and then grandchildren. Um, And so when it happens out of sync, it seems to hit us a a little heavier. And, And I know that you've heard this saying, and that is that no parent should ever bury a child. Yeah. And when I hear anybody that anybody ever says that to me, you know, no parent should ever bury a child that my only response is, but every day they do Hmm. every day, a parent buries a child. And, you know, it, it, again, it, it seems to impact us more because it doesn't follow that typical chronological order, but that order is just something that we've come to believe in. It's something we've come to put faith in that I'm going to outlive my children, you know, or, or I, my children are not going to live me. And, and we, we've, we just marry ourselves to these ideas. And a lot of it too, is that, you know, we want to know that our children are going to carry on for us. There's a little bit of a selfish side of that, that we, we, we have an expectation and we have a desire to see how our children's lives play out. And in some instances that the little selfish side of it is that we really are hoping for that companionship when we get into our later years, we, we want our children to be there for us. Um, so there's just so many factors, uh, societal factors, psychological factors that play into how it is that we end up being so devastated by the loss, especially the unexpected or uh, out of the ordinary loss right. of a loved one. So Chris, where does this reframing capability come from you? Uh, Is this something that you've been able to do your whole life or is this something that you've learned through religious 
studies or life experiences? I mean, we're because it's a very unique skill set for you, and I, I would say for me to be able to do this in the in light of something so horrific, and then on top of you know my wife soon afterwards, but I still was able to figure out a way to do it. So where where does yours come from? So one one thing is you know when when individuals like us have this kind of a conversation, right? I, I always want to make sure that that those listening understand that I, I'm not sitting here saying this is how I do it and this is how you should do it and you're, or it's not oh, painful. Right. right. Or or I'm not right. diminishing or being reductive uh, about yep. you know what it means to go through grief. Um, and so I always like to say that look, every single human being at every moment where they sit, they are the total sum of all of their lives experiences. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and so when each one of us is impacted by a, a significant life event, like the loss of a loved one, we are standing there at that point in time, the sum of all of our experiences, everything we've learned. And so we're all different. Um, I had worked in religious institutions in the past. I attended a Bible college. And so I was in a position where I was often looked to when families lost somebody mm -hmm. and just by chance, it so happened that there were a significant number of families in these places where I worked uh, that, that had unexpected deaths in the family. So I, at the mm -hmm. one church, I operated in a capacity of, of a youth pastor and mm -hmm. I, I had a member mm -hmm. of my of my youth group actually die in a car accident on their way to church. Right. So I, mm -hmm. I was there to offer support to that family. Um, our church had a great music program and my bass player and his son, who was a twin, uh, passed away Sunday morning before church. He was hustling out to a job site and then was going to hustle back, pick up his wife and go to church. But he actually fell asleep at the wheel. He was on some sort of an experimental medication wow. and uh, they died instantly in a car crash. And I mean, I, I could there's probably almost a dozen instances in my life that occurred where I knew people and was operating in a capacity to try to help them navigate, you know, through that loss. So I, I probably had a little more than normal amount of preparation, having seen other people go through it. But I also noticed that, um, that testing, right. The testing of their faith. I saw people battle with it. You know, mm -hmm. here were people in a belief structure that teaches that actually dying is a good thing. You go to heaven right? Mm -hmm. Not denying that the physical loss is uncomfortable, but mm -hmm. there are things in, in the Christian, you know, the Judeo-Christian Bible that talk about that, that to, you know, live is one thing, but the to, that to die is gain, right? But right. When, it, when it occurs and you're tested in it, you know, yeah. you see these people struggle. And so it caused me to look into it deeper. Like mm -hmm. if I'm going to believe these things, if I'm going to think that there's an eternal aspect to this, then why am I going to fall apart? You know, if I happen to lose somebody. Yeah. I've, I've really struggled with that as well. Um, in that, I don't know what word I can find here, but you're exactly right. Is that there's, there's a romanticism to the afterlife, uh, from a religious perspective, or maybe a, a, a mystical perspective. Like, like there's an, um, uh, an ascension somewhere, you know, better, a better place. We always says, you know, that, you know, they're in a better place, you know, and, but we should be almost happy if that was true, then we should be really delighted that they're in a better place, but you're right. And then all of a sudden reality hits, it's like, yeah, but they're not here and I want them here. 
So where does spirituality and religion and faith and all these things come into play to help people navigate to see an opportunity here to become a better person themselves while they're here after a loved one's departed? Where does spirituality, faith, and religion come into play uh, in that context? Well, I, I think it starts you know, be, be, without even getting into a particular faith or a particular religion, really breaking down, you know, a, a belief in an eternal aspect to our existence. It really just begins, we can begin that just looking at the sheer biology of this, right? I mean, mm -hmm. again, we, we are all in the process of getting old. And at some point, our physical existence is going to come to an end, right? right. And so, so understanding that, um, you and I talked a little bit about where I'm at with my faith and, and right. I, I, I am a very spirit, spiritual person and there's a quote, and again, I don't know who gets credit, but it's that we are eternal beings having a temporary physical experience. Yeah. And I, I've moved away from having to have this absolute definition of the eternal element of that. I, I've mm -hmm. read a lot, I've studied a lot, and I've really come to realize that there's far more that I don't know than I do know. And I'm yeah. perfectly okay with that. Um, but you know, our basic understanding of these things can just start with the acceptance of the biological fact that one way or another, you know, our, our, our physical experience or physical existence will come to an end. The eternal aspect of it, whether you believe, if you believe in God, if you believe in heaven, then yeah, those are elements that really should help us to offset some of that grief. If you, believe in heaven, then you have an opportunity possibly to see that individual again in some other form. Join him, yeah. If yeah. you believe in reincarnation, then there's a chance that that individual has already opted to come back and, and take another run at this thing. And, and the basic, you know, uh, idea behind reincarnation is we keep coming back to work on things on a higher eternal plane, right? That we don't really understand in this temporary physical experience. Mm -hmm. Um, but in, in all the things that I've learned and all the things that I've studied, you know, it really just, you know, it, it, I think again, starting with the biological aspect of it and then what, what you believe, you know, my thing is that if you believe it, then, then really truly believe it, right? If you believe mm -hmm. that there's more to this, that there's an eternal aspect, an eternal element to it, then invest in that, um, you know, cause again, I, I, I believe there's more than just this physical existence and that's a whole other conversation <laughs> that mm -hmm. we could get into. Yeah. Um, I mean, even if you just believe that we're all part of a universal energy, right? I mean, we right. see that there are absolute patterns in the design of things, uh, mm -hmm. you know, from everything from the universe itself down to the patterns that, that, uh, of a snowflake, right? And so things follow a, a, a certain vibration or, you know, a certain mm -hmm. universal pattern. And so, um, you know, in some way, shape or form, even if it's, even if it isn't anything more than our ability to leave a legacy, to leave a lasting impact that outlives us. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why we should live this life, this gift that we have. I mean, we're on a planet that's miraculously just the right distance away from just the right kind of a sun has a yeah. rotating, you know, magnetic core that shields us. I mean, it's just, you know, whether, whether that's all just the greatest, um, universal scientific coincidence ever, yeah. or, or there's intelligence involved in the design of it all. Either way, right. every day that we take a breath mm -hmm. is an incredible blessing. Um, and that's really, you know, again, you know, accepting the biology of it, 
if you're going to believe, then really stand on your faith of what you believe um, and, and recognize that there are physiological and psychosomatic responses that take place in our limbic brain that go back to, if you believe in evolution, at some point we were living mm -hmm. in caves. And when mm -hmm. we saw the saber-toothed tiger coming at us, our brains were trained to do things to protect us. And mm -hmm. so rece receiving unexpected news, when I got the phone call that my son had passed away, you know, my there were chemical reactions triggered in the mechanism brain. It's protecting you, yeah. Yes. Right. And, and it's designed to do just that. I mean, some people have the fight mode, some people have the flight mode. Right, yeah. uh, and regardless of which your tendency is, you know, those were designed to protect you. And so as even though I was maybe a little more prepared than the average person when my son passed, I, I didn't get to just, you know, drift through that or glide through that un, unscathed by the, the physiological and psychosomatic effects of it. I mean, I still had to go through the process. It seems we spend so much time on the semantics of, you know, is there heaven or hell or, or, you know, is there God or no God? And we spend all this time debating something simply that nobody really knows. And at the end of the day, all that, all that really should matter is your behaviors towards your fellow humans and animals and, and, and nature. And so, I write in my book pretty much that point that if you're convinced, you know, the celestial journey, you know, you know exactly how you're going to, you know, where you're going after you die and all that. Well, then you should be doing everything in your power today to get to heaven, right? If the reward is heaven, then why do you want to do things on earth that send you to hell? So, so in, in case that's all true, then I think being a good person would be a goal because you want to go to heaven. Well, if you're, let's say, an atheist and you just simply don't buy any of that stuff and you just can't figure it all out, maybe you're agnostic, you just say, I don't know what's going on. Well, then if this is the only life we have, well, then shouldn't you want to focus on making this life the best life you can? So either way, it shouldn't prohibit a human being from living an intentional life on this planet right now. It doesn't really matter anything else. And I think in my book, I kind of submit that argument that I don't really care what people believe anymore. I've given up that whole, uh, it seems like you have too. It's almost like I've surrendered to trying to argue with people because first of all, I don't know what I'm even arguing for other than the fact I don't know what happens when we die. And I'm like you, I've kind of got at peace at that. However, I'm open-minded that if the heavens parted and a chariot came down and all of a sudden somebody said, I exist, certainly I would then be a full-time believer. But I think the beauty of not knowing is simply it shouldn't stop us from being good people. And uh, that seems what you're doing with your mission now, uh, loving life after, and I notice you leave that, that word uh, omitted on the website, which I think is genius because the first couple of times I looked at it, I kept scrolling looking for living life after what? And then on your website, you tell me that's intentional. Um, so I, I, I love that angle you've taken about, you know, living. We both have the word living in our brands, living life after and then living undeterred. But so in regards to people learning to, I hate this, and I know you do too, move on. Seems to me that's such an antiquated term. I like to yeah. say we evolve and adapt. Um, yes. what are some other strategies for people that they can implement that are dealing with the loss? Let's, let's specifically talk about the loss of a loved one. Um, 
what are some other things you just you suggest or what are some things that's helped you? Uh, so, you know, first and foremost, my, my advice to anybody, um, and, 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 you know, let me just start by saying anybody that's listening, that's lost someone unexpectedly, um, you know, I feel you. I mean, I feel you as I say that I'm getting a lump in my throat because mm-hmm. I, I will never, never forget what that felt like. I, I remember the moment I got the phone call. Uh, unfortunately I wasn't in great communication with my ex-wife and um, somebody saw something on a Facebook page, posted something on my Facebook page. My wife saw it. She messaged this person and said, would you please remove that? If something's happened to his son, I don't want him to find out that way. And so I got the call from my wife. She's like, I think something has happened to Ryan. And uh, I, I, I know the spot where I pulled over. It's an entry to this little gated community. I drive by it often. I, I went from there and pulled into a cul-de-sac and called my employer and said, I, I may need to take a couple of days off from work. And wow. so I, I will always remember that moment. And I want to because I don't ever want to lose sight of or, or, or lose touch with the people who are standing there now in that moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. So if you're listening and, and you've gone through that, um, I, I'm, I am standing there with you. Right. I, I, I remember what that what that is. Um, but my my, you know, my advice that the things that I would say to anyone is, you know, knowledge is power. Knowledge is absolute power. And so um, when you can get your wits about you, I mean, I tried to read early on after my son passed mm-hmm. and I was pretty much pushing my eyes along pages. I had to go back and do mm-hmm. a lot of rereading. But, you know, learn, like, you know, listen to videos like this. Um, Maria Lessie's group, Loving Life After Mm -hmm. Loss is an incredible place to just go and, and see other people's conversations. You know, you don't even have to participate. Um, You know, give yourself and open yourself up to listening and learning. Um, And then ultimately, remember that you are a whole human being, that you are physical, that you are mental, that you are spirit, that you are feeling, that you are logic, and that when a life event impacts you like that, if you unexpectedly lose a loved one, allow each one of the parts of that whole you to exercise, to move. Um, We tend to, when we're impacted by an event like that, sometimes the limbic brain takes over. Um, There's a term called an amygdala hijack, where basically the amygdala just shuts everything else down. Right. And sometimes that happens when we're really upset with somebody and we say some things that maybe two days later, when our body chemistry levels back out, we regret what we said. Um, but you know, in, in that give yourself an opportunity, the, the part of the brain that shuts down the most is the logical side, but allow yourself to make some decisions as tiny as they are. Those decisions could be, I'm hearing enough advice. I'm done. (laughs) Like I'm not taking anybody else's phone call. Um, I don't want anybody else's advice. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, be, if you could, I know it's difficult. It's so difficult, especially if you are really in the throes of your mind, uh, taking over for you. But if you can just take a breath and make little decisions, um, each day after I got the news that my son passed, I tried to do just that, um, deciding, 
if I was going to get up, deciding I was going to get dressed, deciding who I was mm -hmm. going to talk to, who, you know, because I knew just some of my background, I knew that I had to give my logical brain a chance to have a say so in it all, or I was going to be stuck in the emotional throes of it. So, um, you know, that could that could be difficult for those of you who are listening to this. Maybe you are listening because you have somebody who's struggling with addiction uh, or uh, you know mental health issues, and you're worried that you may. Uh, come to a point where you, you know, need this kind of advice or information, the best thing that you can do is to be prepared, you know, listen, read, mm -hmm. learn. Um, we live in a world of a ton of information. You know, when, uh, when I was in high school and things like this happened, there were almost no books. I can remember when that Dr. Spock book, like decades yeah. ago was like the yeah. only self-help book out there. Yeah. Right. I mean, there was nothing or, I, I will never hold it against my parents for how they handled parenting because there were no manuals. Today, we have no right. excuse. I mean, there's information everywhere. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation, so always yeah. vet the sources. But uh, yeah, just exercise your mind. I, I think it's the best way to get through things is to is to think and open yourself up to possibilities, allow yourself to make decisions. Th three days after my son's memorial service, I, I got up, I looked at my wife, I said, I'm putting some clothes on. I'm going back to work. I will probably sit there and do nothing. I'll probably stare mm -hmm. at my computer, but I'm going to make the decision to take that step back towards normal. How long did it take you to actually start, you know, not just going to work and stuff, but actually doing this, you know, loving life after and your advocacy and maybe writing a book. I know you're working on that. Um, I know for me, it took 14 months. That's, that's the, that's the day I woke up and quit drinking was December 24, 2017. I attribute that day to really, I was probably even working on my book during that time. I don't remember when I started it, but that day kind of, to me, the day I hang up there is that's the day I drew a line in the sand. Do you have a day like that? You know, that first day that I went back to work. So three I, days I... after? Three days after I saw a, a glimmer of hope, but yeah, there were between that, that third day after his memorial service, there were three days before and three days after. So there was a six day window and mm. there were nights in that six to seven day window when I would lay there at night feeling all that just mm -hmm. terrible, awful stuff. Right. Uh, you know, Can't I mean, yeah. I played all the games in my head. Yeah. I, I thought yeah. about the whole butterfly effect thing. Oh, if I had called him that morning, then this would have yeah. been different. And the ripple effects would yeah. have, oh, it's all my fault. He died because yeah. I didn't call him. And, you know, I mean, I, I played yeah. I played all those tapes in my head. I, I did all of that, right? And there were a couple of nights, and I, I was seeing it as a battle between the light and the darkness. And there were a couple of those nights when I looked at my wife, and I'm like, God, I just, I like, I don't know. If I like, if I wake up and do this again tomorrow, like, mm -hmm. am I going to be able to keep putting up the fight? And I remember there, I, I remember laying there a couple of evenings thinking to myself, excuse my French, why in the hell would I want to wake up and do, mm -hmm. and do this again? Right. Now, do you have other kids? I, I have an older son. He's 33 years old. How did he take this? Uh, unfortunately, as a result of that divorce and, and separation, um, he was called upon to be loyal uh, to his mother. So he and I sure. don't have that much of a relationship. Yeah. So I, complicated. I, yeah, there was at that point, it, it was very complicated. Yeah. 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 
that, that, and that didn't really add, that, that added a layer of complication to the whole situation because I wasn't even sure that I would go to the memorial service just because I knew that there was yeah. going to be an environment there of, of discomfort. Every family dynamic is different. And yeah. I respect, believe me, I respect that. Um, yeah, that one was interesting. Well, yeah, and that's that's um, something else too, because people will say, well, is that the most difficult thing that you've ever gone through is losing a son? Well, that was certainly difficult, but you know, also having a 33-year-old a son that, that doesn't have a relationship with me, you know, that wasn't, e that wasn't easy either, but they're mm -hmm. both things that, that I have been able to, like, like you said, adapt, adjust, and grow, right? Not just move mm -hmm. on or move beyond it, but, uh, you know, my son that, that, that we don't communicate, he is on his journey. I am on my journey. I hope that his journey is fulfilling, that his life is fulfilling. Um, I love him. I always will. Uh, folks have the tendency to, to want to say or comfort me and say, oh, he'll call someday. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. Yeah. And maybe if we hooked up five years down the road, maybe we would like each other. Maybe we wouldn't, right? I mean, these are the, the, the real conversations that we can have with ourselves instead of just sort of acquiescing to typical narratives as to, as to how life should be. So You seem quite calm and holistic. Do you meditate? I, I have a very difficult time sitting still to med meditate, but I, um, I believe in what I call uh, moving to meditate. You know, I've got a, when I'm meditating, I'm on my mountain bike. Uh, like when that. I'm on that mountain bike, I have to focus on that trail. If I'm on mm -hmm. my skis, I have to be very mindful of what I'm doing. Like and being in the zone, right? Yeah, I've got to get in that zone. Yeah. And that's my meditation. I'm out in mm -hmm. nature. I'm focused and, and then I'm able to leave the rest of the world behind and I can literally just take it. Because I think, I think meditation gets oversold. Uh, I have a chapter in my book called meditation. Um, I probably took that bait because I hadn't meditated at all until Seth died. And then I had to just, I had to find a way to be more aware of my thoughts, not like controlling them or anything like that. Just simply be aware of them. Yeah. And then that idea of, impermanence that even even the worst of times die yeah you know and the, you and i were on the floor crying and just as i say in my book you know you're on the back you're on the bottom of the abyss on your back you're looking straight up out of the abyss and you can't go any further because the only other place is death yeah and i've been there i know you've been there it's a, it's a horrible place but it's a great place to learn from yeah because Really, if you if you have that lens and you're looking up out of the abyss, there's only one, one way to go. It, yeah. It's up. Yeah. So I tell people, and, I'm, and you do a very good job, you eloquently explain this very well, of how people need to look at things that happen to them as things that happen for them. You and I discussed this the other day. Yeah. And that's why I asked you about meditation, because you seem very... You're, you don't seem too cluttered, you know, you seem very well structured in, in your, the way you're, you're presenting your thoughts and everything. And I think that helps you with what you are dealing with every day. And I, I know it helps me because as, as full blown attention deficit, the more I can just almost laugh at how ridiculous my brain can be, how just unbelievably I sit back and listen to my, I look at my thoughts. And I'm going, you guys are just crazy. You guys are really crazy. That's how I, I kind of like third party my own brain. It's like, we all do that. We talk to ourselves all the time, you know, 
which is kind of crazy because who are you talking to, you know? <laughs> um, but in reality, that self, that, that, that self-help, I mean, that can, you can talk yourself off the ledge literally. And um, I'm just going to compliment you because I don't meet too many people on this journey that seem to be pretty in control of their emotions and, and thoughts as, as, as you do. And that was one of the first things that I really, you know, grasped onto when we talked, especially your idea of changing the process of, of grief. I just, I never really had anyone present it that way. I thought that's pretty cool because I think a lot of my ability to deal with what I um, go through and what I will go through. My mom died in November. So, you know, I, you talk about order. I want son, wife, mom. <laughs> yeah, Sprinkle complete reverse. Too, I put down, you know, it's like, so it didn't go in the order that I certainly didn't expect, but that's the order that life presented to me, right? Yes. And I can either yes. say, what's the life lesson? Like I took, like I told my boys when their brother died, you know, I talked about the two roads, you know, it's a, it's a backbone of my journey, you know, two roads to go down, you know, one road of anger, despair, and hatred, and one road of inspiration, and motivation. I'm on the second road. I ask you to join me. I think that that mindset is, I don't know you that well, but it seems like you, you're pretty pragmatic that way as well. Um, I saw a podcast where somebody was talking about the only difference between he was in a prison and he said, the only difference between me or you and the people outside this prison is they took a left turn when you took a right turn. And I got to thinking, you know, I, it's all little choices. I mean, both our sons died by fentanyl, but they really started that journey with a series of very poor choices. I know Seth did. He was incarcerated a number of times and drunk drivings and plenty of warnings. You mentioned one thing about Ryan. You said, you know, he was fearless. I have a chapter in my book called Fearless. Seth had no fear. He wasn't afraid of me, wasn't afraid of mom. He wasn't afraid of cops. He wasn't afraid of his teachers. And he certainly wasn't afraid of death. You know, and sometimes that fearlessness can be great if you're a endurance athlete or you're an entrepreneur. Or, <laughs> it's great. But when you're a risk taker, uh, it, it can be a bad thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I, I do want to jump in because, you know, it is very often that someone, you know, says the things about me that you've just said that I seem to be very, you know, stable, even calm focused in control but I, I i want anybody listening to understand that what you see is a concerted effort um mm -hmm. i have a brain that goes a million miles per hour i can sit and try to meditate and i will probably also try to decipher the secrets of the universe work <laughs> work, work on my next problem at work um, right. my, my brain never shuts off i have a difficult time falling asleep at night but why I seem so calm and, and level um, is because I, I, don't, I don't fight it. I, right. I am aware of who I am. I am aware of all the facets that, that, that make up this you know, crazy person that I am. But you know, sometimes in my brain, I'm a complete train wreck. Mm. Um, and so I think it's important that I say that because I think sometimes we meet people and think they were born that way. I mean, I have, I have a friend, he's a, an incredible human being. Um, he's a, a PhD in neuropsychology. And he's that guy when you meet him that you, you pinch yourself. Like, is he really that happy all the time, right? right. 
I joke with them and say, I got to sneak in one night while you're sleeping because I think you smile in your sleep, right? <laughs> um, but then, but we begin to do this evaluative process. Well, he must have had, a, you know, the best childhood ever. And we yeah. you know, start to piece together, how could somebody be that positive and that, that happy? So with somebody like me, yes. I mean, as I sit here, I, I am, uh, you know, very much in control of my emotions and, and I'm able to stop and think through things very logically but it was a lot of exercise because, you know, I grew up pretty scatterbrained and, 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 mm -hmm. and having difficulties focusing. And so um, this is part of embracing who I am. That's who I am. I, I can't shut the brain off. It's, you know, I'm thinking of six other things while I'm talking to you right now. But I think when people allow that to get to them and they allow it to bother them and they think, oh, I've got to turn it off. I've got to turn it off. And they make hundreds of fruitless attempts at, mm -hmm. at meditating in a still position, which I've realized I can do it every once in a while, but that's not really where I can, you know, dial things down. And, and, and so because I've had to work so hard at it, then it's, it's prepared me to handle the things that life throw at me. Um, you know, you, when you t mentioned earlier, how long did it really take me to get to the point to where I could, you know, function and begin to, to move in a positive direction after getting the news of my son. And I mentioned going back to work three days after his memorial service. But interestingly mm -hmm. enough, on that day, I kind of noticed that people would walk by the office and they would look at me like maybe they were going to walk in. But, you're, you know, when you're when you have a child that dies, you go back to work, you're a little toxic, right? Like. Nobody knows what quite what say? to say what, to you. What, what, like, what yeah, do I, I say to this guy? Him. Right, right. right. I like if he starts crying, it's going to be uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, my yep. God. And so yep. every once in a while, somebody, God bless them, would muster up the courage and they'd walk in. But I noticed this one individual that she wasn't one of my direct reports. She answered to somebody else, but she kept walking by and then she walked by again. And I thought, you know, she's trying to build up her courage. And so she walks in. I stand up to greet her. I immediately am thinking I need to put her at ease because she looks terrified. Right. And I was right. expecting her to figure out something to say to me. And she looked at me and she goes, and at this point, I actually didn't know that my son had died from fentanyl. Mm. And so she walks in my office and she looks at me and says, I, I, I really hate to come in here and bother you with this, but I have a son that struggles with addiction and he's disappeared. Mm, and wow. I'm terrified that we're wow. going to find him in a hotel room somewhere and that right. this is going to be it. And in that moment, I, I realized that what I had gone through was absolutely going to become an opportunity for me to help other people. Hmm. And in that moment, I thought, as I get through this, and I knew I would get through it, right. I thought, I'm going to have to take notes. I'm going to have to leave a breadcrumb trail for other people. And it was really that day um, that I, I made that first concerted effort. I thought, you know what, I, I, maybe I should start making notes. And that was kind of the beginning of this, you know, six and a half year plus book or whatever, however long I've been working on it. But yeah, and, and I was able to turn that corner simply because I, I, I had to make that decision to either stand there and just continue to be my own victim in this whole thing. Yeah. Or maybe I could actually get through it and, and help somebody else. And, and it was unintentional that you were going to help somebody. But the fact you were in action and not at home, sitting in your bed, you know, feeling sorry for yourself, the fact you were in action, an opportunity presented itself and you were able to help somebody that day. And I think that's the moral of the story with a lot of people like you and I and a lot of people out there that are, that are going through things is, is be in action. Um, yeah. 
I learned that. I saw Matthew McConaughey get an interview and he was talking about his dad. And his dad told him when he was in Hollywood, he said, be less impressed, be more in action. So I wrote a blog on that idea. And what his dad was simply saying is, as you go through life, don't be, you know, falling in love with all the movie stars and the rock stars and the rich people and the famous authors. He said, just be in motion, just keep doing stuff. And that's helped me tremendously, Chris. Um, If someone would ask me, what's the one thing that has, got you to where you're going and, and what you're doing with your living undeterred project and the kind of the um how we want to upset the mental we want to upset the apple cart in the mental health industry by building this machine of collaborators like yourself and and marie and all these people that we're 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 meeting with but you know i don't know it's it's uh i forgot where i was going with that story but it happens with attention deficit i just go used to it oh i know i was gonna ask you um I am a big fan of and Coach Jim Valvano. You remember Coach Jim Valvano was uh, with North Carolina State. And he died of cancer. And he gave a speech at the ESPYs while he was dying. I think he died like weeks or months after the speech. Probably one of the most spontaneous, raw, greatest motivational. They played every year. And it's been like 30 years now since he died. But in that speech, he said something. I think everybody that hears the speech remembers the one thing. And the point was, if you're not laughing and crying and learning each day, you're not having a full day. So I, you laugh every day, right? Yeah. And you cry every day, right? Yeah. I I have not yet arrived at that place where every day is rainbows and butterflies. Me neither, brother. Me neither. No. No. And I don't know. That's an illusion, like the (laughs) illusion of permanence. The, the illusion of, of unicorns and rainflow, rainbows and butterflies in, in my life. Um, just like to me, I think, and I'll say this and I don't, I hope this doesn't go wrong, but I'm like, careful how I say this publicly, but for me, I can only speak for me. Depression doesn't work. I tried it. I didn't like it. So I quit. So I will, I will sometimes say that, you know, depression doesn't exist depressive moments do the yeah. depression to me is, is a period of time yeah. depressive moment hell i have those every day i, I oh, have yeah. probably hundreds a day yeah you know just sitting here with you i've had moments where i went back and could see my son and i got my book sitting here and real quick i get a little down and then boom i, I figure out a way to get out of that so i allow myself depressive moments you mentioned about fighting upstream or you know fighting against the current it's like I think we are kind of wired to do that, yeah. but I'm not sure that's in, in grief and trauma. I, I, I just think you need to just kind of put the oars down and just let the current take you and just look at the beauty of what's around us and be grateful. I have two boys and I'm very fortunate because uh, they literally saved my life during this whole thing. And then when their mom was dying of alcohol abuse, I went to them constantly. And, and I'm very grateful that I have two of my three boys still here. Um, and a lot of people don't have that. Uh, I've got a number of people I met on this journey that have lost their only two sons to overdose, their only daughter to suicide, or in one case, a husband and a daughter was killed by a drunk driver. Hmm. It's just like, but these people find gratitude, you know, it's, it's there. It gratitude's all around us. I'm grateful to meet meeting you and, and Maria a couple of weeks ago. It's like, well, you have, you have to be open to accept it and you have to look for it. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. 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 You know, I, the, I help Maria on her site, right? The, her Facebook group, Loving Life After Loss. And um, we're, we have a little moderator group and we'll talk behind the scenes about just listening to the things that people are posting. I think you and I talked about where we've seen other support sites. When you look, they're, they're not very positive, right? There's just yeah, a lot of just, negativity. They, they implode darkness. from inside. Right. They, they basically, in some ways, try to help people to continue to wear their grief as if though it's a warm yeah. blanket, right? Um, yeah. And so, I, you know, I looked at Marie. I'm like, do you mind if I just post uh, a statement on the site? And, and, and just to see, you know, where this leads. And, and I just put in quotes, what if everything you have ever been told about grief is a lie? Right. And I, and I let that fall there. And it was interesting to see the responses that what people wanted to do in some instances was to very heavily defend the mm. particular social constructs that they had acquiesced to or, you know, bought into as to and what I, grief I is supposed that, to be. Chris, yeah, exactly. And, and the reality of it is, is that if, if we did just that, I mean, you know, I, this book that I'm writing, that I've got, you know, chapters that focus on various things that I think that will help people be able to navigate through any things that take place in life. Right. But I think if the, if the one thing, if I could sum it all up is to, you know, question why, you know, question why there's so many things that we've bought into. Um, one of the great examples that I like to use is why do we think that a diamond is worth what it's worth? And it mm -hmm. goes back to a 1960s advertising campaign by the De Beers Mining Company. Somebody there realized if I can connect this stone to emotion and ego, we'll all be millionaires, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that was kind of like the big push in the birth of having a nice big rock on your, mm -hmm. you know, engagement uh, uh we're on your ring finger. And to this mm -hmm. day, if somebody walks up and says, I just got engaged, our brain goes to that hand. We mm -hmm. want to see that diamond, right? That's but, true. but really a diamond isn't worth anything. I mean, what is its practical purpose? Well, you can use diamond tip blades and drills to cut things, but they sure. can produce those in a lab. So the right. ones that they dig out of the ground don't, I mean, what are they really worth? They sparkle. But we've so all we're putting, bought we're into putting the value on it. We put the value on it. And we do the right. same thing with the events and occurrences that take place in our life. Our life is an as a string of countless events and occurrences, like grains yeah, of sand that on the be beach. Good and bad, right? We put the yeah. value on a photograph that hurts our heart. The photograph doesn't hurt our heart. We put that emotion in that picture. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And so if, for instance, the evaluation or the amount of weight that we put on a thing, one of the conversations that Marie and I had on her site was about how the tendency for people to think that the worst unexpected death that can occur is when a parent loses a child, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I look at that and say, okay, so my son died, but would it really be less impactful if my wife died? I mean, my wife, who mm -hmm. I spend every single waking moment with and have shared a bond and a yeah. connection with and... Yeah. And so, and I, at one occasion, a friend of mine, her father passed, it hadn't been that long since my son had passed and she was getting upset about the passing of her father. And she stopped and she looked at me and she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I shouldn't even be saying any of this stuff to you. You lost a child. Right. And it's like, well, it, it, it's really not a weight and it's not a weight and balance system. These yeah, are the it, events. We're not and comparing that grief. Happen. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. And yeah. so the fact that we do that is, is really just kind of an amplified version of the fact that we 
we believe what we believe, we feel what we feel, uh, and a lot of it has to do with social influences. And so mm -hmm. I think it's okay to question. Don't ever let anybody make you feel like you're expected to grieve for a certain period of time. I'll hear people say, wow, they seem to have gotten over that rather quickly compared to what? <laughs> yeah. what, what, what is the measure for that? I, I want to just jump on something here because I think you could take what you just said and pretty much go into any discipline. Let's just talk about uh, alcoholism, for example. People are just are convinced it's a disease and, and, and everyone tells you it's a disease and the 12 step people take the disease and, and, and you're, you know, you're just, you're held prisoner to the seductions of this thing called alcohol, you know, and then, you know, I'm, I never went to med school. I've never studied this stuff. And I was an alcoholic since I was in eighth grade, but I woke up one day and just quit. Now I quit because I had some motivation. I buried a child and my wife was dying for alcohol abuse and I thought I'd quit to help her. I never even considered it being a disease. I didn't buy that social imprint that, yeah, it's a disease, but you get into conversations with people that are so convinced it's a disease that they literally have to have that because that explains their inability to win this fight because it's a disease. And so it becomes a, a crutch in a way. Now, if, if you say that, the backlash is just, I mean, you get cancel cultured on social media if you say that. But I feel like I can say that because I did quit. And it really came down to me a left or right turn. And I think more people can believe that way. And if you can trick your brain, I like to say that quote, I say it around my kids all the time. If you can trick your brain, it's like the placebo effect. You know, if I give you a pill and say, you will sleep like a baby tonight. And I give you this pill, you know, first, maybe I gave you sleeping pills for the first four or five days. Then I sleep in a sugar pill. You're going to sleep like a baby. I mean, it's, it's scientifically proven. So maybe our brain, we can kind of self-induce our own placebo effect. And so I just, to me, it's been the easiest thing I've ever had to do in my life to quit drinking. And if I can't learn something from what I went through, then I might as well just drink myself to death. Because I'm not going to get any 12-step class that's going to teach me to quit drinking any better than burying two people that I love, that I lost to this stuff. Um, I'm not going to pay any motivational coach to get in my head and get me to quit any more than burying two people I love. We talked about how many life coaches and everything that's out there today. It's like, so I just, I wanted to ask your thoughts on our, seems like our lack of society's acceptance to accept choice being more powerful than the alternative. And that's being held prisoner to all these things that everyone tells us we have to subscribe to. Yeah. Again, it's, it's, you know, there's, I mean, so much of our existence is built around these social constructs. Um, mm -hmm. We, we, we know that our behaviors and the things that we do, the way we dress, the way we comb our hair. I mean, we know that they there, there is definitely social constructivism going there because we can visit some other place in the world that doesn't have the same social influences and they're doing things completely different, right? Um, there point. are societies that when somebody dies, they actually see it as a long-term illness and um, they'll, hmm. they'll bring the body into the house and it stays in there for months, right? Um, while they're, you know, because their, their belief system is structured completely different than ours. And so if... Hmm. If, if everything was just universal, then we would all see it the same. We don't. So therefore, 
we end up wired differently. And a lot of it is, is that social influence. And, and so the social influence in the United States is, you know, different than other places. And so what we hear and what we see, especially in this digital world, which is a whole other subject to get into, is how we're trying to live under the false expectations of a virtual reality, right? I mean, I think it's mm. crushing us. Um, we weren't designed to live virtually. We're, we're living, breathing beings. But anyways... Oh, and by, by the way, yeah. I sent your question to James Miller. Uh, <laughs> you were on the live stream, your question. And I, I was on James' podcast this morning. Yeah, I was a guest on a show and I was talking about your question because I saw your question come up and I had to get him off the stage because I had more people in the background. And so I went ahead and pulled your question and sent it to him. So he'll, he'll get an answer for you because I love that yeah. the way you phrased that question. Yeah, I, I knew it wasn't a 30 second answer when I posted it. I thought, <laughs> no, that's know, why I'm, I didn't give it to him. I'm, I'm it would have been unfair to him to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, you know, this whole idea of 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 either having choices or feeling like we're trapped in things and we're helpless in things and there's, you know, no way out. I mean, I, I see these comments buzz around a lot when it comes to drug addiction, right? And people will say, yeah, but you know, okay, well, if drug addiction's a disease, the first time they use, now that was a choice, right? And it gets complex yeah. because for some people, the first time they use a doctor prescribed something for them, right? All mm -hmm. of my mountain biking and skiing, I've destroyed the discs in my spine and I'm in pain and my fingers are tingling while I sit here. And the only thing that they've offered me is medication, right? There's no surgery. There's no fixing it. You can't regrow yeah. your discs. And they're like, well, we're going to send you for pain management. I'm like, oh, you're going to go and, and have me uh, <laughs> sign up for uh, Oxycontin, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And, and if I would have, you know, bought into the, what the doctor said and I was too uncomfortable to live with the, with the pain that I have, um, I might've gone down that road. Right. So, so sometimes it's a choice. Sometimes people do what they're told by doctors, right? They, there are right. people who've grown to listen to doctors. So it just gets, it is complex. And, and just so you know, four and a half years ago, my wife and I quit drinking alcohol. So we really don't do anything. Um, and I was a wine enthusiast. I still have a collection. So yeah, I mean, I've got 200 bottles my, sitting in two my dog wine fridges in Camus. another room. <laughs> my dog's named Camus and my cat was named Opus. <laughs> so so here's how bad I am. In your video, when you talk about it and you're reaching for the glass, yeah. even though I only saw half of it, I knew it was a Camus label that was on it that was, yeah. And actually, um, I didn't want to open it because I, I. it's a long story. It's my podcast, so I could tell it. But I keep a bottle of Camus next to my bed yeah. just to mock it. Yep. Just to laugh yep. at it. And I go out to dinner yep. by myself. I order a glass of, of Camus by myself yeah. and I won't drink it. Yeah. And the wait staff will come over and say, well, I have to ask, how was your meal? And I say, good. And they say, how was your wine? I just say, I don't drink. And I leave it at that. I let them figure <laughs> out how crazy I am. But I, I do that as a trick to prove to myself I don't need to drink. Now, how many, yeah. quote, alcoholics keep a bottle of wine next to their bed? You know, but yeah, that, that was my bottle. And we had to use grape juice to pour in the glass because I didn't want to ruin the bottle. <laughs> And this is coming from a guy that doesn't drink. It's like, okay, I don't want to ruin the bottle, but I'm never going to drink it. So, you know, I don't know. I, I, again, going back to these society constructs you talk about, it's like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to participate. I, I don't have to play. Yeah. Um, I talk about a lot about attention deficit disorder. I, I don't allow anyone around me to use the last D. Yeah. It's not a disorder. And if a doctor tells you it's a disorder, get a new doctor because I don't think it is. I think there's a spectrum. There's obviously kids at 10 and nine that, that probably need to have water down Adderall, whatever, but right. certainly my attention deficit has, has been the best thing that 
if there is a God, the best thing that God ever gave me was my attention deficit because it allows me to do a lot of stuff in a short amount of time. I don't always do it well, but I do a lot of things and, and you're wired the same way. But yeah. Yeah. attention deficit is another label and stigma I'm trying to change, especially with kids. There's a you different know? label for that. You are, like me, a mental multitasker. I like it. <laughs> that's I'm, what it that's is. That's the third thing I'm going to steal from you. I'm going to write that down. I mean, you know, I, I can have several different things going on in my head at the same time. And you mentioned uh, a little bit before about talking to yourself. I, I always say it's perfectly okay to talk to yourself as long as you're a good listener, right? I mean, hey. <laughs> or know. win the argument, one of the two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, that whole thing with drinking and, and for us now, I, you know, neither one of us would have by anybody's standards have been diagnosed or, or you know, labeled as an alcoholic. Um, I wasn't needing to drink to, to self-medicate, right. but I love the social life of it. You know, we have wonderful little wineries here in New Mexico. Folks don't know that we're the oldest wine country in the United States because Napa gets all the credit. Um, right. You know, those kind of things. And I have apprenticed at a couple of wineries and was actually real close to signing into a deal to go in with a local vintner and a local microbrewery hmm. owner to open up a winery. And uh, but I've decided not to go down that route because I, I don't want to create something uh, that, that I wouldn't participate in myself anymore these days. And I and right. I still have my collection. It's not that I won't take a taste. I have a 2005 Margot from France that when I have friends oh, over man. and if we have a steak dinner, I, I will have a sip. Right. Um, but I, but but I realized that it, it, it was our social life. I mean, we were doing. Yeah wineries and microbrews and i mean we got like a yep. champagne winery here Gruet, and you know we right. were members over there and cases were being shipped to us all the time mm -hmm. and trips to napa and you know and that was the most difficult part was uh, friends of ours had called and said will you do a 45-day cleanse with us and not drink we're like okay quite sure. frankly I, I love them but they really needed to <laughs> and <Yeah>. so <laughs> the hardest thing was was reworking our social life and and the reality of it was Everybody else in our social life was far more uncomfortable with us not drinking than we were. And to this day, when Isn't we go funny? out and everybody else is drinking, like they don't know what to do with us, <laughs> you know, you know and they, I, have I to, love the, they have to talk about it. <laughs> I love the way that you've just approached all these things. And, I, and it, that's why I said I had to talk to you because you, I think you and I are so similar in so many fronts. But, you know, even just the word sobriety, I don't even use the word sober because that implies I'm in a fight and I'm not in a fight. I just, and here's what's funny. I may have a sip of that wine with you someday. I'm not, I'm not telling people I'm never going to drink again. I just not yeah. drinking today. Yep. And I haven't drank for whatever, how many year, years it's been since 2017. I'm not telling anybody I'm not drinking tomorrow. I got, I got to live to tomorrow first. Yep. And if I make it tomorrow, then I'll choose whether I want to drink. I will tell you right now, I will, I will have a glass of wine before I die. Probably at my son's wedding when they get married or, uh, maybe when I get married again, or if I ever do. Um, I'm know, predicting it's going to be my 2005 Margot that I've been saving for the past 15 years. But I tell you, if I'm anywhere remotely close, I, I, I'm not kidding you. I would be honored to have a sip of that. And you know what? I wouldn't say I broke my streak. I don't play streaks. I think alcoholics torture themselves with going on social media with signs saying that all they're doing is when they inevitably become human, and they fall off the wagon, then they're just going to self-loathe to death, literally. And then they got to start all over again. And I was on an app for a while that kept streaks on your meditation days. 
And finally, the guy said, this is ridiculous because people are just going in and clicking on they meditated just to keep their streak. So I think personally for me, another narrative I'm trying to break with people that don't want to drink is stop keeping track. Now, 12 step doesn't yeah. tell you that. No. They think, well, it reinforces. I don't know if it does. It creates more anxiety and stress, to my opinion. Yeah. Just yeah. don't drink today. How much harder is that? Yeah. Yep. And for us, not drinking was just a matter of looking at our social life and the amount of, of energy and minutes. I mean, our life is made up of moments and minutes. And I was thinking right. about the amount of moments I was cashing in on the social elements of, of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, I really, given the choice to sit in a winery or be out on my mountain bike somewhere, what would I really rather do, right? right. Where, where do I want to spend my moments? So you only have right. so many in the hopper. And, right. and I just didn't want to spend them in that place as much anymore. And, and though I, you know, I didn't feel like I was drinking to cope. I didn't feel like I was drinking to self-medicate. But nonetheless, every time that I was drinking, you could deny it all day long, but you are under the influence of that drug. And, mm-hmm. and I realized I, I love things wide awake. When, when my son passed a couple days or so into it, after I made, you know, the announcement out in public on social media, uh, the, the woman that uh, lost her daughter that, that died on a car accident on the way to church, mm-hmm. she reached out to me and, and I know she was trying to be helpful. She didn't want me to overlook the, uh, uh, the help that I could receive if I would consider medication. She remembered just how completely destroyed mm-hmm. she was over this event put right. herself in my shoes and thought, God, if this is just ripping you to shreds, don't be, don't be embarrassed or feel bad to go see a doctor and, you know, maybe get some Valium or something to take the edge off. Cause for some people that the, the chemical imbalance that takes place, uh, you know, in that limbic brain response is really just unimaginable. Mm-hmm. But, but the one thing I said to my wife was no matter what, how this transpires, I'm going to go through it, not under the influence of anything else. I don't care how much it hurts. I don't care how painful it is. That's I just, great. for yeah. some reason, feel like yep. I got to feel it. Like I got to feel it raw. Like I got to yeah. do it raw. And so experiencing something like that raw um, and then choosing to continue on in life, experiencing all of life raw and not under the influence of, of anything other than my own mental capacity, that, that's something that works for me, right? Um, the yeah. legalization of marijuana, we're going to have people that, that are going to walk around probably always a little bit under the influence. And maybe that's yeah. how they want to go through life. But for me, I, I just want to be wide awake. It's one of those things. I agree with you, too. I think my grief recovery and so forth, my evolution has been uh, by not being, you know, I take like three supplements. That's it. I don't take anything. Um, but if you think about this, if you know in advance um, that when you get off medicine, that you have a negative uh, letdown or um, withdrawal, let's say. Yeah. And therefore you make a conscious decision not to go on it. Well, then you never really have to worry about the letdown or the, or the, um, yeah. Um, I just said the word. Um, yeah. You don't have to worry about that. So that's one of the reasons why I never did drugs is I didn't want the other effect of having to feel like I always had to do it. So I, at a very young age, I was fairly cognizant that as attention deficit, you know, all the things that I had, if I did drugs, it wouldn't, I, I would love them so much. I'd want to do them all. You know, if I saw yeah. a bag of Coke, I'd want to snort the whole bag, not just whatever you do when you snort Coke. But, and I, I knew just at that young age, it, I just, um, I'd be the death of me. And I, fortunately I had that 
you know, the, the foresight to make those decisions. But I just noticed we're at an hour and 11 minutes, dude. Um, I mean, <laughs> I that's I just... how when good conversation goes, it's like, you know, it's like we killed a good bottle of Cabernet right now. It's like, uh, no, I, I um, really enjoy the conversation today. Um, I certainly fully expect that we're going to hook up or collaborate at some level, uh, whether I come out on the tour of Kentucky or have you talk or, um, you know, get you involved somehow in some of the projects we have. Uh, I got tons of respect for Marie. She's already reached out to me to kind of uh, get involved like you're doing. And I've thrown my hat in the ring, uh, you know, until I have too many rings I'm involved in. Uh, right now I'm, I'm okay, but, but I'm really honored to have you come on the show. So if people want to reach you, either to have you as a guest on a show or to just pick your brain because you seem to be a pretty uh, interesting person to talk to. How do people reach you? Just the easiest thing is my website, lovinglifeafter.com. And then on there, there's a, a form you can fill out that'll send me an email. And I actually have one of the little uh, calendar invite things that I set up that somebody can go in if they want to schedule a talk. Um, I, I, you and I talked about the life coach thing and mm -hmm. I feel that it's sort of a sacred thing and I'm, I'm very reluctant to don the title, but what I do is make myself available. Uh, mm -hmm. if I've said something that somebody thinks that maybe a conversation with me would be helpful, um, that that's what I'm here to do. I, 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 I make a wonderful living with my wife in the mortgage business. Um, I'm not in a position where I would need to, you know, go down a path where I would, you know, need to make a, a living helping folks. So at, at this point in my life, I volunteer my time to help people. Well, I know Ryan's awful proud of you. So, <laughs> um, and I'm trying to keep Prudence and Seth proud of me as well. So I'm sure they are. I'm sure they listen, are. Listen, man, I love you like a brother. Appreciate very Same much here. your time. And uh, I look forward to, to talking again with you soon. Okay. Absolutely. Talk soon.